Hello everybody, um, good evening, welcome to us Facebook and Talks. Uh, thank you all for coming this evening. Um, in January last year, as part of our exhibition at Art Space by Laura Potras, um, we held what turned out to be a fascinating public conversation between Laura and the art historian Bettina Funk. The dialogue highlighted for us the value of public discourse between our two people as a simple but focused means to elaborate on and discuss central concerns of an individual's work. Since that event, Bettina generously accepted our invitation to turn the format into a regular series under the title Art Space Dialogues. And we're very pleased tonight to be kicking off the first season of this series with, with, uh, with further conversations over the next few months with artists Sarah Morris and John Knight. Each event in the series is dedicated to an influential figure in the field of contemporary art and visual culture, investigating their work and thinking, their histories, trajectories, and processes. We are hugely pleased to be kicking off uh, these programs with tonight's dialogue between Bettina and curator and critic Douglas Crimp. Douglas was our ideal candidate for this first event, given both the importance of his work to the history of art space and the key role he has played in art and culture in New York over the last 20 years. Douglas Crimp currently holds the position of Fanny Nat Allen Professor of Art History at the University of Rochester and was editor of October Journal between 1977 and 1990. His close relationships and engagements with artists have led to key works of scholarship, including On the Museum of Ruins with Louise Lawler in 1993, and Our Kind of Movie, the films of Andy Warhol, uh, published in 2012, both of these published by MIT Press. He has also addressed the intersection of culture, politics, and the urban environment of New York City in the book Melancholia and Moralism, Essays on AIDS and Queer Politics in 2002, and the exhibition Mixed Use Manhattan, Photography and Related Practices, 1970s to the Present, curated with Lynn Cook at Arena Sophia in Madrid in 2010. And before pictures, uh, Douglas's memoir of New York in the 1970s will be published next fall. And to introduce Bettina, uh, art historian, writer, and editor Bettina Funk is author of Pop or Populous, Art Between High and Low, published by Sternberg Press in 2009. And as head of publications for Documenta 13, she produced a range of publications that included the notebook series 100 Notes, 100 Thoughts. She did seminars on contemporary art in the Critical Theory and the Arts Master's Program at SBA, and recent publications included texts on Wade Guyton, Sarah Morris, and the State of the Copy, as well as conversations with Laura Poitras, Thea Backstrom, and Robert Willow Penta. Uh, Bettina is also co-founder of the Leopard Press, which recently published Fuck Seth Price, a novel by Seth Price. Uh, before I hand over to Bettina and Douglas, I'd also like to say um, tonight, a huge thank you to the Friends of Art Space, who are so supportive of our program, and both our exhibitions and the kind of program you're attending tonight. So, thank you to, for making this happen. So, over to you, Tina. Thank you, Richard, and um, thank you, Douglas. I'm so excited that you agreed to come and speak to me for this new dialogue series. Um, and I love that we can talk about the upcoming book, the memoir. Um, back to the beginning, which is in this book, which is something I would like to do in this series, also to go back to the beginnings, not in any nostalgic way, but to look at how the issues and the questions often are posed 
very early on and they keep coming back and keep being relevant in different ways through decades of work. So your memoir seem to be the perfect material to discuss and to open the series with. It's a very special book. Um, it's a book that brings together personal experience, memory, research, criticism. <clears throat> so you're suggesting a new form of history, a new form of writing for yourself, and um, maybe you can tell me how, how you got to this idea to write in this very different way. Um, yes, I mean, it has a, a complex um, beginning, I guess you could say. Um, I, I would really go back to my AIDS work, um, which uh, AIDS occupied me between 1987, when I did a special issue of October on, on AIDS, uh, and about 1995, it, it occupied me more or less exclusively, intellectually. So I was lecturing, I was writing, uh, teaching courses, and, and uh, it's also what moved me away from October, and uh, into uh, full-time teaching and into a, a kind of new field, I suppose, of cultural studies, which is uh, the field that I teach in at the University of Washington. But when I was working on AIDS, I, um, first of all, I, I think important to the current book is that I began to write in a different voice that is, I began to write uh, in a personal voice and to bring in aspects of my own experience. Because AIDS was, of course, um, it affected me so directly, me and, and the people that I knew, and uh, my world. Uh, it changed my world completely. And so um, after writing several essays, I came to write one called Morning in Militancy, which begins with a, uh, uh, a personal anecdote. So that personal voice uh, is something that I think has now somewhat taken over my writing. Uh, and also dating back to that moment, when I was, uh, when I was an activist in Afghanistan, most of my fellow activists were about 20 years younger than me. So I had experienced the post-liberation or the, the, the liberated period of, of uh, queer sexual culture in New York in a way that many of the younger people had not. They knew it um, uh, from uh, what they had read or what other people had told them, and they knew it in the worst way, from the kind of um, revisionist history of that period, of the, of the period of liberated gay sexuality, um, as it was rewritten in AIDS narratives. So fundamentally, you get sexual liberation, which leads to the destruction of AIDS. And it is the period of immaturity, which then AIDS turns us into like a mature uh, culture that you know wants to settle down and take care of
care of each other and eventually marry. Um, so I, of course, opposed that narrative in my writing. But the important thing is that many of my younger friends would ask me about the 70s, and, um, and some of them would say, you know, you should write about this period because it's in danger of being lost in this, in this revisionist narrative. So that was something that was put in my mind, I think. And, um, but I deferred, I deferred moving to writing on that subject by writing at, uh, about Warhol's films. I thought about doing something like a kind of archaeology of my own, you know, the New York that I found myself, the queer New York that I came into. And that I thought I could see in the 60s, mid-60s films of Warhol, which I was interested in as works as well. And um, so I, I, uh, I began that project. And then, you know, nevertheless, I was thinking, even in that project, somewhat personally and memoristically, uh, and then I got an invitation to write, um, to give a lecture at the Guggenheim Museum in conjunction with uh, the Daniel Buren show in 2005. Um, and I had been at the Guggenheim in 1971 when Buren's piece was famously removed from the Guggenheim International, one of the scandals of the moment and one of the kind of uh, really important uh, events in the history of uh, institutional critique. Uh, and um, so there was that occasion which, uh, I, which I took um, and became actually uh, both chronologically the first chapter in my memoir and the first one that I wrote. Yeah, and it's a good example of um, I was thinking about the book coming over here and what, what's so special about reading it, I've read it now a couple of times, is that it slows down history, it makes history more personal, more complex, and usually we think about Daniel Buren, uh, the scandal of the piece that was up only for one day, and um, we don't really think about who worked with Daniel Buren to put up the work or you know, like we're entering your life, you walk down Fifth Avenue on the way to the Metropolitan Museum to see if you could find your first job there, as you write in the first chapter, and when you come by the Guggenheim Museum, you think like, oh, that's a museum, maybe I should ask here. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, history starts to feel very different if this is the narrative that leads us to this Brand scandal. Um, yeah, and that's, you know, that sort of coincidence that, um, the, tell, the story that I tell there is about walking into the Guggenheim and asking for a job and the person who was interviewing me or who basically I saw in the, in the, in the office uh, said, do you know anything about pre-Columbian Peruvian art? And, and I said, yes, I've studied it in my university and um, it just happened that they were having this exhibition of pre-Columbian Peruvian art, and um, the organizer of the exhibition, the curator of the exhibition, who was a specialist, a pre-Columbian specialist, um, 
fight with the director of the museum and was essentially ordered never to darken his door again. And then all of these objects arrived from Peru, and no one, no one in the museum knows anything about them. So, so I, they thought maybe I could help them with the installation. So, but that that sort of coincidental thing, it it also happens. I mean, it happens in life, and it actually happens in the process of writing as well. Um, and it's one of it was one of the great pleasures of writing this this. Uh, book is that um, I by by digressing from or by moving away from any known form. I mean, it, it isn't really accurately called a memoir. I mean, it's a it's a it's a hybrid genre. So I I, I shorthandedly refer to it as a memoir, but because it has my memories in it, although my memories are not so great, so there's a lot of research to reconstruct uh, or to, um, to invent uh, the stories. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it, the, the process of, of, of not having the, the, the typical goal for writing about a history frees you to, um, to research in, in whatever direction your writing takes you. And uh, often too for these sort of odd coincidences to come up. And I should say that in the in this first chapter, the, the, the first uh, when I when I was asked to give a lecture to Guggenheim in conjunction with the Buren exhibition, this is the, the exhibition where they invited him back to and gave him the entire rotunda to make uh, a piece called um, Around the Corner. Um, you know, I knew that Biren had suggested me and that they had learned that I was there when the piece was removed in 1971 and that therefore I would be the person who could tell what really happened. And I didn't want to do that um, for various reasons. One of which is I, 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 I can't, I mean, I have my memory and my story of what really happened. But I, um, but a lot of people have done a lot of extensive research on it and, and written uh, widely about it. And there are wildly divergent stories about what happened. Um, and so I wanted to complicate the, this, this truth-telling task. And in doing so, I basically invented what became the, the structure of, uh, of the memoir, of the, of the book of Before Pictures. And um, I think that maybe the easiest way of explaining that is that I knew from the beginning that if I were to write about the 1970s and to write arbitrarily about this 10-year period from when I arrived in New York in 1967 to 1977 when the picture show was done, the event for which I became somewhat known. Um, and I would, you know, arbitrarily write about various aspects of my early career or my finding my way as a critic. Uh, 
I wanted to write simultaneously about the two aspects of my life which were um, central to what was going on for me at the time, and those, and it, it happened to be uh, an extremely experimental period in uh, in art and in queer sexuality. So it was, you know, Stonewall took place in '69, so there was a kind of explosion uh, in uh, the development of uh, a liberated queer culture and bars and mass and sex clubs and, you know, organizations forming, political groups forming, newspapers, all of that, you know, was happening during this uh, moment. And then at the same time in the art world, you were getting a turn away from uh, the conventions of painting and sculpture and the invention of uh, performance art and um, the turning towards uh, new And so um, I wanted those. I wanted to bring those two things together. And so I invented this. So I, in, in order to do that, um, in the, the chapter on Buren, I thought, well, aha, there's. I have this first job in New York. Uh, I worked at the Guggenheim Museum. I got this job by by chance, walking into uh, the Guggenheim at just the right moment. But actually, I had had another first job a previous first job that I didn't so often talk about. And that was working for the fashion designer, Charles James. So I thought I would put those two things together. And that's what I did. And in order to do it, I, 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 I developed a kind of, you know, from anecdote to critical reflection to uh, uh, another anecdote uh, to a discussion of uh, an issue that was on the table at the time, which was the, um, the kind of uh, diatribe against design. Um, and of course, what was Charles James, but a great fashion designer and also, in fact, a great interior designer, um, insofar as the home of the Dominion family in Houston in, in 1950. Um, and uh, so basically I'm making a chapter which is about my first encounter with institutional critique or conceptual art on the one hand and haute couture on the other. Um, it's the moment when institutional critique isn't called institutional critique though. No. Well, this is what no, makes it no. so powerful that mm -hmm. someone who wrote on the museum's ruins was touched by an event deeply which then informed your writing for, you know, for a long time and um, to me, you know, that brings alive a movement that just now has a name and it ha it's, it's hard to, to remember, you know, it came, it came into the world through uh, certain constellations, people and produced thoughts and now it's like a tradition we, we inherited, it's a third generation institutional critique mm -hmm. in a way and uh, so to, yeah, so that I thought was really special. And um, also the tension between when you come and you you're in your mid-twenties and you have to negotiate the queer world and the art world. It's sort of different schedules, different energies, sort of ambition versus desire or 
a mix of the two. Um, it, it's wonders to the whole book that, that you have to find your place within it, the front room, the back room, um, those yeah, things. Maybe we should explain what the front room is. Oh, yeah, room. the room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a, it's, I, it's, a, it's a trope that I use in, in my introduction uh, because, um, you know, when I said before that I, that in writing the Warhol book, I was doing something like an archaeology of the queer world that I came into. In 1969, I moved into a loft in Chelsea, and I began going every night to Max's Kansas City, where the Warhol, where Warhol was no longer hanging out because he had been shot in 68, uh, but the Warhol scene was there. And um, I mean, so there are probably people in the room that know this, but uh, Max's which was on Park Avenue South near Union Square, <clears throat> had a, a long front room with a bar um, and, a, and then a large square back room with just tables. And there was a Dan Flavin sculpture, a red Dan Flavin sculpture in the corner of the back room, which made it, which bathed the whole room in, in red. The front was quite dark, and the front basically was where the artists hung out. Um, artists that I, many of whom I had come to know. Um, Joan Jonas is here, she probably hung out there, I would imagine. Um, Richard Serra, Robert Smithson, Lawrence Wiener. Um, I had met these people in my job and, and uh, in various ways. And then in the back room, you had the drag queens from the Warhol world and from the theater of the ridiculous, um, the sort of glam rockers. Um, and that's, of course, where I wanted to be and uh, where I did go. But I had to walk through the front room in order to get to the back room. And so I had to somehow, I, you know, it, it became clear that I, I wasn't going to sit down at the tables with the artists. I was going to go, I was going to say hello to them and then move on to the drag queens. Uh, and so that became a kind of metaphor for this negotiation that I had to, uh, that I had to do like throughout this whole period, basically. Yeah. And, um, you know, I might actually mention this, this image at this point. Um, uh, we, we chose to put it up. It's a, a many of you, I'm sure, know it's a photograph by Alvin Beltrop. Um, it's, uh, and it's taken sometime in the, uh, it would be between certainly 1975 and when he stopped taking these photographs in the early 80s. Um, I was working on a chapter of the memoir, um, actually, that was occasioned by a piece that I wrote about Joan Jonas um, in 1976. That was the kind of career event that I was uh, organizing a chapter around. But I knew that I wanted to write about, I was, I w I was interested in, in Joan's outdoor work and her use of the city, uh, the spaces of the city, the vacated spaces, the temporarily vacated spaces of lower Manhattan. And so I was interested in the way both groups, both the artists and the queers, were using these uh, peripheral spaces of the city. 
And I knew about Alvin Beltrop's photographs. I had heard about them um, and seen one or two of them. And just uh, again by chance, I had met the uh, person who is the trustee of the Beltrop estate, someone whose name is Randall Wilcox, who's a young African-American artist. And um, I went to see Randall, and he showed me these photographs. And among them were quite a number, like this one, that showed the queer scene at the piers, and also showed Gordon Matta-Clark's uh, Days In, which, in which Gordon Matta-Clark made several cuts, made I think six cuts in the pier. Um, and at the Gordon Matta-Clark was something that I was also interested in writing about at that point. And, and it, it, there isn't an enormous amount of uh, visual documentation on the day's end. So suddenly here was all of this new documentation, but it had within it images of cruising and, in this case, sunbathing, the way that the gay men were using the piers at the time. So suddenly I had this image that put together the two worlds that, that I was interested in, in uh, bumping up against each other in this book. And suddenly there it was distilled into an image. So it was a, an enormous find for me. Yeah, because now these worlds are not so separate anymore. And right, art world, gay world, it's, it's not an issue anymore. So that's also interesting to even remember what that, that was actually a huge issue for you um, and thus for the, for the world. Um, it was interesting for me to find out that you said one way to deal with it as a writer, as a critic, at that time was to write about female artists in the beginning. So this is certainly not the only reason you wanted to write about John's work and I think you must have been really close. And, you did another book again later on, describing the early performances together, so there's this, a deep relationship. Um, when did you start writing about male artists then? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, my first writing, my first published writing was for uh, Art News. And I, I luckily knew um, through the curator that I worked with at the Guggenheim, I knew Betsy Baker, who was the managing editor of Art News, and she commissioned me to write um, my first article, which was actually about Georgia O'Keeffe. There was a Georgia O'Keeffe uh, retrospective at the Whitney, and I reviewed it or wrote an article about it for Art News. So that was the first thing that I published. Um, the second was actually about Jack Torkoff, who was uh, a friend. Uh, his two daughters were very close friends. In fact, I probably met Joan through Helen Torkoff, um, one of Jack's daughters. And um, so when I, I, when I, uh, of course, when I then became a reviewer for Art News, I was working sort of on assignment. And uh, so I wrote, but I, but I, 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 looking at back at my reviews, I did actually write more often about women. I don't know whether I, I mean, I, we were both assigned and could sort of divvy up the reviews. And mind you, the reviews were like three sentences, so they weren't much. Um, 
but then so that I think the next really substantial full monographic article that I published was on John Jones's uh, performance work for a special issue of um, Studio International in London on performance art. So by then there was performance art had become enough of a genre that they were doing a special issue about it. You mentioned a few times now um, inventing things for the book, fiction, research, memory, and um, I checked a question about the titles of the chapters. Mm -hmm. um, the one on Daniel Varane is, it's not on Daniel Varane, but that circles around the Daniel Varane incident is way out on the nut. I actually Googled it. And the only, because I didn't know what it meant, and uh, the only thing I found was a reference to your book. <laughs> or Back to the Terminal, Art News Party, Sotel des Artistes, Action Around the Edges, This Skull of Fragments, and I don't know. So I know that these, these point more to fiction or journalism than, you know, you don't mention any artist names in the chapter titles, even though each chapter sort of circles around an event specific to an artist. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious about that. It seems like a choice. Yeah, well, I guess I, I, since I wrote uh, Out on a Nut first, and that was my, uh, that, that's where I, you know, that became something of a model for the, for the chapters. I'll tell you where, where it comes from. I wonder if my friend Henry knows where it comes from. Sorry? What? Is it Sophie Tucker? It's so, uh, Sophie Tucker, but it also appears in a James Schuyler poem. Yes, That's yeah. why I thought you would. Yeah. And um, it also, and it appears in, I mean, where I quoted it from was um, uh, Frank O'Hara. And actually, the Schuyler poem is called for Frank O'Hara. Um, so, um, so Sophie Tucker bought a gold tea set. And she. Uh, she's, you know, it, it wasn't particularly practical to have a gold tea set, but um, she said um, it's it's way out and on a nut for service. I mean, it's something but kind of vocabulary from like the 1910s, right? Uh, it's way out and nut for service, but it was my dream, and uh, and so um, and oh, oh, Hera, um, in an early art chronicle about the Guggenheim Museum uh, says, you know, in the end, I, he, he talks a lot about the, the new building, about all the controversy about it, and he says, in the end, I think it's like Sophie Tucker's piece that's way out of the nut for service, but it's my dream. So, um, so yeah, and action around the edges actually is a it is from a description that Joan and I wrote. I mean, Joan presumably wrote it about how in uh, Choreomania, the first performance of Joan's that I saw, one of her earliest performances in a law in her loft, um, was a there was a hanging prop, and the action took place only around the edges of the prop. So that's where that. So yeah, most of them. Uh, uh, disco, of course, comes from the, the the fragment of a piece that I wrote on disco in 1975. Let's say um, it's the way to, it's pronounced disco, um, and it's the way. Five S's. 
Yeah, fine. But a lot of it's that kind of it has to have that hissing sound. Um, it's the kind of feedback of the electronic music. Um, that's the way my disco partner would refer to disco. Well, disco brings me to another topic I really wanted to bring up, which is dance. Because mm. dance also dances through the book. There's you're dancing um, at night in the discos, then there's, um, in a way, it's a dance, the early performances that are filmed or videoed um, by Joan or by Lucinda Childs or various people you have seen before. I think 1970, the first Miss Cunningham performance at Bam. Um, then you have a whole chapter uh, dedicated to Argon, which is a piece by Balanchine, so it's deep into ballet history. You're seeing endless amounts of ballet with your student friend, Craig Owens, who you tell us is a ballatomaniac. Um, and then now in your later life, you started to turn largely to writing about dance. And oddly, dance has now been more and more included in the art institutions or museum world. And there's one sentence that I liked a lot. It's not even a sentence. Dance is both individual and collective, which you mentioned uh, in the disco fragment. And I was wondering if something about that sentence could be one of the reasons or one of the relations of why dance appears in so many different... Is there, you know, you never connected mm -hmm. in this book. And for me, it felt like, but the connection must be there. It must be so interesting. Um, does it have anything to do with it being individual and collective? Does it bring together the, you know, the ten tensions between queer world, art world, finding your voice, between the poet critics and Greenbergian formalism, and this transition transition from sculpture and painting to, you know, like the more open forms of art practice? Yes, it's an interesting question. I, and, I mean, that phrase, of course, I was referring to a specific, uh, an aspect of for, uh, my experience of disco dancing. And I should say that, you know, I grew up, I grew up in Idaho, I grew up in a very provincial place, but I, in the fifth grade, for some reason, uh, I was taught ballroom dancing in school. Um, and uh, dancing has always been a very big part of my life. Um, so I learned how to dance in the most conventional sense. I could foxtrot, I could shotish, I could waltz, and polka, and all of those things. But then, almost immediately after that, um, my, uh, my sister was two years older. Um, uh, her friends were all learning how to jitterbug. So I and so and we would dance in the school gym when I was in junior high school on our on our half hour lunch hour. Um, but we would somehow have a, a soft pot even in that amount of time. So dancing was I was doing that as a junior high school student and then as a high school student. And in the sixties, I learned all of those crazy dances. I learned how to twist and wakusi and holly gully all of those kind of things. Like it was, uh, um, and so, um, you know, the, those dances were more and more moved from 
being something you did with a partner to something that you did in a club, the way people now dance, or where you, you, go, to, you go dancing, and you may have your dance partner, but essentially, you're not even often touching the dance partner. You're, you're each doing your own thing, effectively. And you're in a huge crowd, maybe two, 3,000 people, uh, in some of the big dance venues, um, and it's, you're dancing as a kind of mass. And so, um, for me, that became sort of emblematic of, of the, the kind of sexual culture that I was part of, which was a promiscuous culture, and one where you weren't, you know, I mean, I talk about my disco partner, but we were partners only insofar as we went to the disco together, and we left together, but we, and we, we also slept together, but not, not often, and not, it wasn't a big deal, it was just because, you know, we were, we were friends, and, um, and, and that was the world that, 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 that as I, as that was the dance world that I knew, that I participated in. That um, was very much tied up with the liberated sexual culture of the time. Of uh, not, of, of, being, of, of being part of, a, of, of something bigger than yourself and bigger than, you know, you and me against the world. It was, it was a, it, it was a experience. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure that um, seeing concert fans uh, is the same thing, although certainly, you know, the, one of the moments that I talk about in the memoir that was truly significant to me was the Grand Union. And the Grand Union was a group of dancers that came out of Judson who were working together collectively as a, um, in a, an improvisatory group. Uh, and they were all close to each other. They all had a history together. So that, that was, I think, something that felt quite collective. Um, uh, but I, I think that when I discovered, I mean, the, the main dance chapter of the book is about Balanchine. And uh, I think, um, that was a very, very different experience from, from my own experience as someone who did popular dancing. Uh, it was something extremely formal. Um, and of course, having a, you know, its, its forms have a history that go back to the 17th century. Um, but Balanchine, of course, modernized them. And, um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I try to to come to grips with in that chapter is that Craig Owens and I, Craig, Craig was a huge fan of Balanchine and really made me the fan that I am of Balanchine's choreography. And um, uh, we were studying post-structuralist theory and we were going to the ballet three times a week. And I'd never thought about that before, about you know the conjunction of those two obsessions, and they really were obsessions. I mean, such that, um, and you know, it, it takes a form in my writing when when we did the first the special issue, the first special issue of October on photography, and I wrote about Degas' photographs of ballerinas, and I was using Degas. 
model, and as was Craig in his essays for that issue, and as was Rosalind Krauss in hers. And so we were all, I mean, Rosalind was teaching Derrida to us, and, and Craig was translating Derrida. Um, they were way ahead of me at this game. But, um, but at the same time, ballet was a huge part of our lives. And, so I was trying to think about, I, you know, it, what gave me the, the way of thinking about it was um, Jennifer Holmans wrote this book called uh, Apollo's Angels, which was a kind of diatribe against um, post-structuralism, basically, against postmodernism, against the fragmentation of, of, uh, of dance in her, in her world, and that we needed to get back to the kind of uh, formal purity of Belgium. And I thought that's that isn't what that isn't what I it isn't purity. Um, it isn't the purely Apollonian uh, side of Balanchine that I'm that Craig and I were interested in, I don't think. Well you write quite convincingly about uh, Craig was translating uh, Paragon by Derrida. Paragon is the frame. And uh, you talk about, well, how Sweetwater <coughs> Derrida thinks of the Paragon as something that's never been uh, considered in aesthetics. It's always been left out. And um, you could think of the frame as the corps de ballet, or the frame of the frame of the painting, or the institution as a frame, or the mm -hmm. criticism of the writing as the framing device. Um, and you're speaking about how maybe the frame is almost like a hinge. It's the inside and outside is what is connected on the frame. And Derrida concludes maybe you can't distinguish the inside and the outside. And, I, and so you speak how about you know seeing this very formal ballet of Balanchine many 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 times and thinking about the frame that how he uses the corps de ballet. It's very active. It pulls a lot of the attention of the audience onto itself, and usually it's more meant to be in the background and decor. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that's such a powerful thought that comes out of studying, speaking or being close friends with Craig Owens, seeing the ballet, and it's sort of a, a guiding thought for thinking about art, basically, for the coming decades. Um, and then you mentioned, actually, that by chance you find these, this note in a book Mm -hmm. Yeah, but my, uh, in right, while I was while I was <laughs> trying to figure out what I wanted to say about Craig and his translating of the Paragon, I pulled my copy of Derrida's Of Grammatology off the shelf and I opened it up and on the on the title page it said um, fourth row double A low numbers and those were the Seats. Fourth ring? Fourth ring, right? Fourth, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fourth ring, double A, uh, low numbers. Those were the seats that Craig told me to buy at the box office for the ballet because they were they were very inexpensive because they were on the side arms. But if the low numbers are at the back of the side arms, so you're closer to the center. But it meant that those were the seats we always bought we went so often that we had to buy very, very inexpensive seats. And um, so we always saw Balanchine's ballets from very high up and at a completely oblique angle. And, and I think that that actually 
determine in some ways uh, um, the way I think about balancing. But also, you know, the, 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 the question of the frame in dance is something that now that I'm writing about dance, I realize how utterly crucial it is in, um, for example, Cunningham um, totally breaks the frame by, um, by, having, uh, by not having a center on the stage. So any dancer is his or her own center. And he also, even though, even with his proscenium pieces, he treats the stage space as a kind of field. So um, uh, the dancer may be facing upstage, downstage, stage left or stage right. Uh, and the dancers also are not necessarily dancing in a, an obvious relation one to the other. So you have to actually make a decision which dancer you're going to look at. There is not, his company was not divided into principal dancers and core dancers. All, every dancer is, is a, a, a kind of equal individual. The men and women are almost always in Cunningham dance, uh, uh, dressed in the same kind of clothing, um, basically tights and leotards. So there's not even a gender distinction, although there's still some gender role in, 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 in Cunningham. So a lot of the, 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 the um, uh, I mean, I've been able to actually understand, I think, more about a lot of contemporary dance in relation to the kind of theory that we had brought to bear on contemporary art at October in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, another example would be, I mean, I just saw this uh, last weekend, uh, Patricia Brown Company dancing set and reset, which is a work from 1973. And for it, Rauschenberg uh, made side legs of the stage that are transparent. So what takes place off stage is visible. And, and, and as, a, as a, a response to that, Tricia choreographed the dance in such a way that almost everything takes place in relation to the frame of the stage, to the side of the stage. So there is, you know, you can both see the person who's preparing to come on the stage but then when that person comes on, they'll probably be doing something right there. The piece begins with a dancer being walked, that is held aloft, and looking as if they're walking across the back of the stage and then around the side legs. So it's all about the frame. And of course, 1983, this is a time when, when, when Craig Owens wrote the essay, From Work to Frame. Um, and where you know the application of of Derridean deconstruction was really being brought to bear on contemporary modes of art. So you told me you like to swerve. Um, you told me you like to swerve in your work. Oh yes, to swerve. Swerve. <laughs> Sorry, am I jumping? I uh, maybe I'm swerving. <laughs> um, another word I wasn't familiar with actually, just English vocabulary ones. And I was wondering how, you know, that, like, how do you, how is it possible for you to move through so many different areas of research and writing 
and lecturing, teaching, and I mean, in a way you told me it's because I like to swerve, and maybe the oblique angle allows you to always see the way, you know, to the next, to the next swerve. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think it, it, I, I never really thought about what it is that made me. I mean, you're talking about my swerving from on the museum to ruins to melancholy and moralism to Andy Warhol to before pictures and now to dance, dance film. Mm -hmm. um, you know, teaching is, plays a very large role in this, and I'm very, I'm extremely lucky because I teach in a program uh, at the University of Rochester, it's a PhD program called Visual and Cultural Studies, and it's an interdisciplinary program. And so I'm, so I'm not teaching a field. I mean, of course, my field of expertise is contemporary art, but I, I'm free to teach whatever I feel like teaching. So, for example, in 1984, sorry, 2004, 2004, <laughs> um, in 2004, I uh, taught a course on the Bonn Wiener. I decided I I was. I wanted to sort of sneak some dance in by the back door, and um, uh, and much of my program was open to all sorts of things. I, you know, I didn't think that dance was really one of them. And, uh, so, but with Ra with Rainer, because she made seven feature films, and much of the scholarship on Rainer at that point was on her filmmaking career and not her dance career. She had only just come back to making choreography in 2000. Uh, 2004 was when uh, she was making her second piece, uh, uh, which was actually Avon or AG in Mexico. Um, and so, so it was a kind of, it was a way of, you know, bringing into my teachings some things that I was interested in pursuing learning more about. And that led to writing an article on Raina's work, um, which wasn't strictly an article about dance. It was more about her use of music in film and dance, uh, her relation to music, actually. And, um, but it was shortly after that that I then wrote Armour's Command, and when I really began to write more seriously on dance. So there was, there's a very direct relation between my pursuing what I would call an amateur interest, something that I care about but um, isn't my, isn't something that I'm trained in, uh, in my teaching. And this goes all the way back, there's a, there's a discussion of this in the memoir, to teaching at the School of Visual Arts, where for quite another reason I could teach anything I wanted, which was that they basically had no system at that school. And, um, we were, we, you know, I had to teach the, uh, the, the, the required uh, huge introduction to art history course to all of the students, whether they're designers or artists or whatever. None of them particularly interested in the subject. You know, a survey course from Paleolithic art to the present. Like the great books. So, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and as a kind of, um, Compensation, I guess, for teaching that. I could teach I, the other two courses that I taught would be whatever I wanted to. So something that I had some notion I wanted to learn more about 
in one case, I gave a, a course on the School of Fontainebleau. I mean, most people here probably don't even know what that is. It's a, a French Renaissance uh, uh, style. It was a period when the King of France brought Italian artists, mostly decorative artists, to the Chateau of Fontainebleau. And, and there was one painting in particular that really intrigued me. It's um, uh, two naked women in a bath, and one is pinching the nipple of the other. And I thought, I have to find out what this painting is about. And so I taught a course on the School of Fontainebleau. And um, I, that didn't lead to any, any books. <laughs> but, um, uh, uh, but in the present, it really does. I mean, my inter I, 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 I am able to, luckily, able to um, follow in my research and my writing the kind of amateur interests that or what I call amateur interesting. I, I, you know, I've been seeing dance for since 1970, and it had never occurred to me to write about it. But once I began teaching about it and researching it more uh, uh, professionally and seriously, then I thought, well, I actually have something to say. Or, or I thought, you know, this is a challenge, which is which I'm open to, and which I'd like to. So it's a, it's a matter of, um, you know, sometimes, like with the AIDS book, moving from, let's say, institutional critique, or, or you know, from the pictures period through institutional critique to working on AIDS, that had to do with a, a swerve in my life, that, you know, something that hit me that mm -hmm. I, couldn't, I couldn't not do. So of course it's temperament or you know like a, a spirit or a state of mind that has to come along with what you're talking about being able to swerve. But maybe also that you were so fortunate to study in the only uh, department of where you could study contemporary art in the country at that time with Roman and Krauss. And maybe there's something about studying the art of your contemporary time that opens the doors to moving into any direction, which today might sometimes feel almost like a challenge or something that, you know, makes it hard to, but, but back then maybe it was really the true openness that be, belongs to that study of contemporary art in your own time that allowed for the path you could then take. Yes, it's a huge difference, you know, I mean, the, the fact that Studying, studying contemporary art in the sole program where it was where one could, um, it, it was because it was not so much a um, part of the of the of the field of art history as it was understood. I think it freed those of us who were in that program to pursue our own course more than would be the case in if you were, let's say, at the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU at that period, when you had to uh, <coughs> produce a dissertation, let's say, that was uh, a, a fairly standard. Term. My dissertation was on museum drawings, essentially. So it was um, the kind of work that I was doing at that time. Um, now that's shifted 180 degrees to the point where most 
PhD students in the field of art history are working on contemporary art. And contemporary art has become a very defined field of its own. So I don't think that now if you're studying contemporary art in a PhD program in art history or even in visual and cultural studies that you have quite the degree of a sense of, of freedom that those of us at the CUNY Graduate Center had in the 1970s and 80s. It's not unshadowed terrain anymore. Not at all, no. <laughs> Over to try to Wondering if there's maybe one more thing we want to talk about before things up goes. Um, so something about I have no idea of the time. What time it's is it? So did it, is there something that you would like to talk about the book that we didn't touch on yet? Or you know, I'll say something. This is really not. It's just a. a matter, I suppose, but I'm, I have to say that I'm, what really excites me about this book, and um, my editors are here in the room, um, is that I'm able to do it exactly as I envisioned it once I started envisioning it as a book, which is to say, because I'm doing it with Dancing Foxes Press, and because Joseph London is designing it, I'm able to have a book that is, for me, commensurate with the kind of text that it is. So the text um, uh, fundamentally puts together the queer world and the experimental art world. And then within that, um, I talk about uh, painting, sculpture, film, dance, uh, architecture, urban, urbanism, uh, a very wide range of subjects, but I also talk about uh, traveling, cooking, uh, there's a recipe in the book, um, uh, summering in, in uh, Provincetown and, and Fire Island. I talk about the Watergate, uh, Senate Watergate hearings. It rambles across a many, a very wide range of things. Because I'm able to do it with uh, uh, people who uh, who like its hybridity as a genre, um, and because they're willing to support it um, so fully, I, it's going to be illustrated with about 150 pictures. And oh, one of the things that we didn't really talk about, except with Charles James, is fashion. There will be incredibly beautiful fashion photographs in the book, uh, but also snapshots of me and uh, snapshots of you know film stills of my boyfriend who was a film uh, a, a sort of film scholar, I guess you could say. Um, uh, all kinds, I mean, an extremely wide range of illustrative material. And I think it's going to give the book a kind of uh, a wonderful feel. And that the, that the kind of uh, movement and spiraling around subjects that is a part of the text is also going to be part of the way the book looks. That's really what you're up to. Yeah. That's great. Well, I, I can't wait to see its bound form, and um, we can all see it in the fall. <laughs> Thank you so much, Doug. Yeah, thank you.